Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. If you have one of our uh, black Bibles from the welcome table or from the bookshelf over there, it's on page 944. Uh, We're going to look at verses 1 through 42 today. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. You may be familiar with this passage. It tells us about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. If you're not familiar with this story right now, you're probably going, what woman and what well? What does this have to do with anything? Uh, But whether you're familiar with this story or not, we will all learn quickly that we cannot afford to ignore it. It's in God's word, so right there alone means that we shouldn't overlook it. But it's, it's a necessary stop in the layout of John's gospel because it reveals not only a common need of every human being, but also a shared mission of every follower of Christ. So I want to pray and ask the Spirit who lives in us to open our eyes and help us see what's here so that we can uh, obey it and, uh, and bring glory to Jesus. Father, we love you and we thank you that you haven't just sent your word to us, you've also sent your Spirit to dwell in us, to, to lead us into all truth to help us know you and love you and follow you and obey you. So we pray this morning that you would do do that work in us through your word and your spirit as we gather together as your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a general rule of thumb, you can uh, survive about three days without water. Okay? General rule of thumb, person can survive about three days without water. When you compare that to being able to survive about three weeks without food, uh, it becomes even more apparent just how important water is to our ability to live. Now, probably none of us in this room have to worry about finding a water source over the next three days, but chances are also good that we won't drink as much as we need, right? Because we all have heard the other stat of how much daily intake of water you should be drinking, and I think, I know I fall short of that for sure. Here's another rule of thumb that we need to know. It's easier, it's, it's easier to ignore this rule, too, uh, too than the, the three-day uh, countdown. If you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. If you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. And if that's true physically, then how much more so is it true spiritually? See, we live in a, in a world of thirsty people. We, we know this. We understand. We experience this thirst ourselves or have. People who have a spiritual longing that they can never satisfy because God gave them that thirst in the first place. It's an inner thirst and only he can satisfy it. But here's what we need to remember. As believers, our thirst has been quenched by God through his son, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so as those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, as those who have been quenched by the living water, Jesus Christ, here's what we're going to see in our passage this morning, what we need to to be uh, uh, aware of and, and take to heart we must be determined to take living water to thirsty people. We must be determined to take living water to thirsty people. Let's listen to the word of the Lord here in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the first six verses here. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, 
he left Judea and went again to, to Galilee. And he had to travel through Samaria, and so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Judea and Samaria and Galilee are all regions, were all regions in Jesus' day. And if you grabbed a map handout when you walked in this morning, you'll be able to see those broken up. And if I asked you to look at that map and said, tell me the best way to get to Galilee from Judea, you would tell me, well, the best way is a straight shot through Samaria. Straight up, right? And that's true, but the super religious Jews like Nicodemus and the Pharisees, uh, they would go out of their way. They would take the long way around by crossing over the Jordan River on the right side there, over, and, then, and then traveling up the east side of it, and then crossing back over once they went were, were north of Samaria so they could avoid it altogether. Why? Why would anyone take a longer road trip than they need to, right? There was some bad blood between them. If you, if you think back to the Old Testament when the kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, still called Israel, they claimed Samaria as their capital city, and, and uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, claimed Jerusalem as, as its capital city. Eventually, both kingdoms were captured and dismantled by enemy nations, the, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., and the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. And in both cases, many of God's people were taken out of the land. They were exiled to these foreign kingdoms, while some of God's people remained in their own conquered regions, but they were under the rule of these foreign kings now. So the regions of Samaria and Judea are the remnants of the northern and the southern kingdoms, respectively. Okay? Judea uh, is, uh, is Judah. Samaria is, is reflective of their capital city. When the king of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, he brought foreigners in. So he took Israelites out, and he brought foreigners in to settle in the land and replace those Israelites that he exiled. And as time went on, the, the remaining Israelites, the ones who still lived in the land, they started intermarrying with these foreigners. And when they intermarried with these foreigners, they started intermixing with their, their, their worship. And so they began worshiping God, but they also began worshiping these other foreign false gods. And so when the, when the exiled Israelites from the southern kingdom returned from exile, when they started coming home, these half-Jewish, half-Gentile Samaritans offered to help them rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but the, but the returning Jews were like, no way. You, you've defiled yourselves. You've intermixed with everything. So they rejected their offer. They accused them of defiling themselves. And so the Samaritans set up their own temple. And, in, and the hostility between the northern region and the southern region, northern region of Samaria and the southern region of Judea, was still uh, very much felt in Jesus' day. That's why strict Jews like the Pharisees would avoid going through Samaria to get to Galilee. They despised the Samaritans. It's, it's, like, it's like going, uh, like you know the straight way, you know the short way, but it's, it's riddled with construction, right? You, you hate construction. Nobody likes to drive through construction, right? We go around it, even though it takes longer, even though that's the shortest way. 
They hated the Samaritans, and so they went around. They avoided Samaria in order to be uh, the the to to stay ceremonial ceremonially clean themselves. These strict Jews and and uh, and religious leaders, but the 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 everyday Jew would also typically avoid Samaria because they didn't want to be shunned themselves by the religious leaders. So they're avoiding they're avoiding shunning from themselves, and, and so they're avoiding Samaria altogether. But when John says in verse four that Jesus had to travel through Samaria. He had to travel through Samaria. John's not saying that Jesus was doing so begrudgingly as a Jew. No, he was doing so willingly as the Son of God. He was compelled by necessity. He came, listen, he came to seek and save the lost. This is Jesus' mission, right? Throughout the Gospels, we never see Jesus compelled by his circumstances. Instead, what do we see? We always see him compelled by his mission. He had. He had to go through Samaria. I wish the same thing could be said about me. But if I'm going to be honest, I, I would say that I'm often more compelled by, uh, by my circumstances than I am by the mission. Why? Because circumstances give me an excuse to avoid the mission when it's uncomfortable, Right? But the mission removes my excuse to avoid the circumstances. The mission of spreading the gospel will inevitably lead me and you to seemingly inconvenient places with seemingly inconvenient people. When that happens, I have two options. You have two options. We can begrudgingly say, I have to do this. Or we can willingly say, I have to do this. I have to. The first mindset is convinced that there's a better way. Second mindset is convinced that there's no other way. Why? Because it's compelled by the necessity of the mission. Because it's convinced that Jesus seeks people out through us so that he can save them through himself. I have to. I can't not. Who are, you, who are your have-to people? And where are your have-to places? To whom and to where is Christ compelling you to go with the gospel or to bring into your own life with the gospel? Listen, we've all been guilty of avoiding certain people and places because we either vehemently disagree with them or disapprove of their lifestyle or because we don't want to or we want to avoid being shunned by our own people or ridiculed or questioned but when we do that what are we really doing aren't we avoiding the reality that Christ is able to save sinners and we're forgetting that Christ came to us because we were sinners who needed to be saved right? How might we rearrange our lives if we avoided most, if, if what we avoided most was a missed opportunity to share the gospel? If we were so inclined to be careful not to miss an opportunity to share the gospel, how would that change how we're living? This is a question that, that I have been struck with this week, and I'm still trying to answer If you remember our series 
through the book of Genesis, you may recognize the place that Jesus stopped here in verses 5 and 6. Sychar. Sychar was very close to the ancient city of Shechem. Recognize that one? A lot of things happened there, right? Genesis 33, Jacob purchased a section of, of a field in Shechem from the sons of Hamer. And then in Genesis 48, Jacob gave that piece of land to Joseph as a double portion of his inheritance. Joseph's bones were later buried there. Abram set up an altar there. Isaac set up an altar there. Jacob set up an altar there. Lots of things happened at Shechem. It was an important place. You know Jacob's will, uh, will. Jacob's well still exists today. You could go there and, and take a drink from that well. How amazing is that? It's a reminder that this is not a fable. This is not a, a, a fictional story. This is nonfiction. This is history. This actually happened. There really was a Samaritan woman that Jesus met here. Let's not forget that. And this was the perfect setting, not only for John to remind us of the humanity of Jesus, who, who was worn out from his journey and needed a drink, but also to remind us of why God came into the world as a human in the first place. So let's keep going with verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and the one who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, and, and, and as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will, well, will, will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. The God who created water is able to empathize with our need to drink it. Isn't that amazing? With our physical need, as he humbled himself to the limitations of humanity, Jesus was thirsty. He was worn out. He'd walked a long way. It was noon. It was the heat of the day. He was thirsty. And he had nothing to draw water with. And so when the woman from Samaria came to the well, he asked her for a drink. But it was an odd time for her to be there. Usually women came in the morning and the evening to gather water when it wasn't so hot out. And they also came together in groups. But she was by herself, and it was the middle of the day. Most likely, she was a social outcast. She wasn't just a Samaritan shunned by the Jews. She was shunned by her own people. She was an outcast among outcasts. Now, the contrast between this woman and Nicodemus, if you, if you remember from uh, chapter 3, the contrast between these two couldn't be more evident. He was a Jewish rabbi. She was a Samaritan reject. 
By Jewish standards, he was the epitome of what it meant to be moral and upright, and she was the epitome of what it meant to be immoral and unclean. But there's one significant thing that they both had in common. When they both met Jesus, they were trying to avoid being shamed by their own people. Nicodemus came at night to avoid being seen by the Pharisees. He didn't want them to question what he was doing. And this woman came in the middle of the day to to avoid being seen by the Samaritans because they already knew what she was doing. Jesus Jesus would have stepped on a lot of Jewish toes by speaking to a woman in public, especially to a Samaritan woman in public, and especially, especially by asking her for a drink. Why? Because she said it herself, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And yet Jesus was content with drinking out of her, drinking water out of her jar, which is something that Jews would never do. And he was content with sending his disciples into town to buy Samaritan food, which is something Jews would never eat. Drinking from a Samaritan vessel or eating Samaritan food, again, would have made a Jew ceremonially unclean so that they could not go to the temple and worship until they had performed all of the rites to be able to be made ceremonially clean again. Jesus' disciples probably crossed paths with this woman when they were walking into town and she was walking out. Did you ever think about that? Do you think they talked to her? Probably made her get out of the way. This Samaritan woman understood the social code, but she couldn't figure out why Jesus was breaking it. Jesus was kind to this woman. He was kind to her. Not only did he treat her like a human being instead of a social pariah, he was also compassionately using their common physical need to address her deeper spiritual need. If you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, then you would ask him and he would give you living water. He would never say no. Living water is another term in John's gospel that has a double meaning. Back then, it was common for any uh, uh, flowing water, like a river or stream, to be called living water because it was like life coming up out of the ground. Jacob's well was about 100 feet deep, fed by underground streams from the nearby mountain slopes. It was pure living water in this woman's mind. And so when Jesus offered her a drink, her response was, how are you going to give me a drink from this well if you don't even have a bucket. In her mind, she's going, listen, do you know of another river or stream nearby that's easier to get to, that's better than this? Show me that one. Like he did with Nicodemus, Jesus took her question about earthly things and he redirected her to the truth of heavenly things. The living water that he was speaking of wasn't from a river, it wasn't from a stream, it wasn't fed into a well, living water that he was offering was himself. It was himself. And this water has the power to quench a kind of thirst that even the best earthly water can't satisfy. And Jesus didn't need a bucket to give her, her a drink of this living water. Why? Because he would make her the vessel to carry it. He would give her eternal life by pouring his Holy Spirit into her. 
Anyone to, to whom I give this living water, will, it will become a well of water within them, springing up to eternal life. But it was the middle of the day. She was hot and thirsty, just like Jesus was, and so she was still hung up on the living water in an earthly sense. Look at verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You've correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your, true, is not your husband. What you've said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, and John inserts, who is called the Christ for his Greek readers. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I the one who am speaking to you, am he. Jesus' offer was appealing to this woman in a literal sense. She didn't want to have to keep coming to this well in the midday sun. That was the only time she was able to do that. And if Jesus had a way to give her water so that she would never have to come back to this well again, then in her mind, he was better than Jacob. He could provide something greater, and she was all in. But she needed to look past her parched throat to see her parched heart right? And so Jesus turned the conversation that way. He said, go call your husband and then come back here. Now he knew what she knew, but she didn't know what he knew, right? And she didn't want to have to explain her painful and shameful past to him. And so in an effort to avoid a painful conversation, she bluntly said, I don't have a husband. End of, end of conversation, but look at how gently and compassionately Jesus treated her. He didn't call her a liar. He didn't call her a liar. What did he do? He commended her honesty. She was telling the truth, just not the whole thing, right? And then he graciously brought the rest of the truth out into the light. Jesus' physical thirst reminds us that he's fully human, if that's the case, then his knowledge of this woman's life also reminds us that he's fully God. Let's not forget that. But he didn't bring up her checkered past in order to pile shame on top of the guilt that she already felt. No. What did John the Baptist say at the end of chapter 1 when he pointed to Jesus, told his disciples to go that way? What did the Lamb of God come to do? to take away the sin of the world. Jesus didn't come there to pile shame on top of her guilt. He came there to take away her sin. He wanted her to see that her, her own thirsty heart and understand that nothing else and no one else would quench her spiritual thirst 
besides him. He knew her better than she knew herself. All her mess, all her junk, everything about her that made everyone else turn away and push her away. But Jesus came near. He came near. He had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria because this woman who had been tossed aside by everyone else also desperately needed a drink and he had living water to give her. We have a great deal to learn from Jesus here, don't we? When we see someone in sin, I'm so guilty of this. When we see someone in sin, it's easy for us to say they are guilty and need to see their guilt. When we think like that, we're prone to lead the conversation with, you've had five husbands. And the, one, the, the guy that you're living with now isn't your husband. You're out of wedlock. What you're doing is wrong. We spend the majority of the conversation trying to convince them of that. But I think it's a mistake for us to assume from the start that someone who's caught up and so uh, apparently hard-hearted that they don't care or don't know that what they're doing is wrong. I, I, I'm certain that that's true for some people whose consciences have been seared. But I think we listen online far too often to the, to the overall conversation that's happening. I think the hostile tone of these impersonal conversations that we're listening to online tends to amplify this in our minds so that we assume that it's true of everyone. They just don't even care. I'm willing to bet, though, and I, I imagine this is your experience, most of the people that we will actually have personal conversations with are more like this Samaritan woman, longing to be known and loved, but afraid to be known and rejected. Chances are that they know they've done wrong and they feel the guilt and shame of it and their, their bluntness is not a callous dismissal of the truth, but an attempt to protect themselves from being exposed to more guilt and shame. They're trying to survive, but they're out of water. How might our tone change? How might our language change if instead of looking at someone and thinking they're guilty and they need to see their guilt, we instead think they are thirsty and they need a drink? Do you know that we can lead with that and still get to the issue of sin? Jesus just proved that. He just proved that. He didn't ignore her sin. He didn't excuse her sin. He didn't pretend like she didn't do it. But he treated her first as a human being. Someone that he had something in common with. They had thirst. It was hot. They were weary. treated her like a human being before he ever treated her like a sinner. But here's the thing. Jesus actually shows us what it looks like to treat someone as a sinner. We don't avoid them like a self-righteous Pharisee. We don't go around them and up and then back over. We don't shun them as a social pariah. We seek them out with compassion and love. We dignify them as human beings and we help them see their spiritual thirst. And then what do we do? We offer them living water to drink. 
it's like a no-brainer for us to, to compassionately and quickly bring drinking water to people in need after a hurricane or a natural disaster, right? Are we just as quick to compassionately bring living water to people in need after a spiritual disaster? I think if we're honest, we would admit that we hesitate there. Confronted with the fact that he knew so much about her, the Samaritan woman concluded that Jesus was a prophet. She didn't want to go any farther in her own personal life, so, so, so she's got some questions. Because he's a Jewish prophet, but he's, 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 he's compassionate toward her. She's conflicted, and so she wants to ask him these things. Hey, listen, I got some questions about worship. I need you to answer them. From their vantage point at Jacob's well, they could look up and turn to one side and they could see Mount Ebal. And they could look to the other side and they could see Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture. That was their scriptures. And the book of Deuteronomy, God told the Israelites that when they entered the promised land, after you go in, he said, half of you need to go up on Mount Gerizim, half of you need to go up on Mount Ebal. And those that go up on Mount Gerizim pronounce the blessings of the covenant that I'm making with you. And those that go up on Mount Ebal pronounce the curses of the covenant that I'm making with you. And if we read the rest of the Old Testament, we'll see that God named Jerusalem as the place where, where he would dwell, where his temple would be. But because the Samaritans thought that those later Hebrew scriptures were invalid, they set up the temple on Mount Gerizim because that was the place of, of blessing from the Torah, from the, from the first five books. But about 150 years prior to Jesus uh, and, and this woman meeting here at this well, the Jews burned down that Samaritan temple on that mountain. And th then to make matters worse, they excluded the Samaritans from being able to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And so she wanted to know, hey, who's right? Where, where do we worship? I don't have the temple here and I can't go there. Jesus said, an hour is coming and is now here. What's he talking about? Whenever we see that phrase in, in John's gospel, almost always it's referring to Jesus' uh, uh, crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation, what he came to do, the work that he came to do. It's here. The Messiah is here, coming to do this work. And in that hour, Jesus just promised this woman that he would take worship off of mountains and out of temples and put it into people's hearts. And anyone, 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 regardless of their background, who drinks this living water, a.k.a. who believes in Jesus, which is the theme and the call of John's gospel, anyone who puts their faith in Christ will have the wellspring of the Holy Spirit living in them and leading them to true worship of God. Jesus says, you don't have to go to Jerusalem and you don't have to climb this mountain anymore. This is how the Father wants his people to worship him from hearts that are made new by the Holy Spirit and that hold to the truth of the gospel of, in Jesus Christ. That means that worship doesn't only happen on a Sunday morning. Oh man, it's so good for us to be here together, right? But if this is the only time that we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, we're missing out on all that Jesus is communicating right here to this woman. You have the wellspring of the Holy Spirit living in you. That means anywhere you go, you can worship God. 
all times, in all places, but it also means that we don't abandon the Sunday gathering. Why? Because we don't just worship according to the Spirit, we also worship according to the truth. And what is the truth? It's God's Word. And what does God's Word tell us? Don't neglect the, the gathering of the saints. Why? Because we, we make Sundays a priority so that we can encourage one another and spur one another on toward love and works that reflect the fruit of the gospel in our lives. We need this. We need this. When Jesus told the woman that an hour is coming, she seemed to equate that with the, with the coming of the Messiah. But the Samaritan understanding of the Messiah was a lot different than the Jewish understanding. Based on their understanding of the entire Old Testament, the Jews expected the Messiah to be a strong political military figure who would rescue them from the tyranny of Rome. But the Samaritans only had the first five books. And so they concluded that the Messiah was this prophet that Moses had predicted would come and explain everything to him, would tell him the truth. Neither one of them got it totally right, right? Her comment in verse 25 seems to be a roundabout way of asking Jesus if he was the Messiah, and he was happy to give her the answer in verse 26. I, the one who am speaking to you, I'm him. It's me. I'm the Messiah. He wasn't worried that she would try to tell him then to go rebel against Rome. Oh, well, if you're that guy, let's go, right? Which is what so many of the Jews did when they figured it out, which what his disciples wanted when they figured it out. He knew that she would willingly listen to his instruction. Think about this. The first person in John's gospel to whom Jesus plainly identified himself as the Messiah was an outcast among outcasts. Now watch what happened as a result. Look at verse 27. We're going to read through the rest here. 27 through 42. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Is there got a secret stash somewhere? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there's still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest the reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So much for the shortcut. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves and know that this is really the Savior of the world. 
Chances are the disciples ignored this woman on the way into town, right? They crossed paths. But now they couldn't. They couldn't ignore her anymore. They came back. She was there. These Jewish men were surprised to see Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman, their Jewish rabbi. But they refused to ask her what she wanted because that would mean then they would have to talk to her. And that was a no-no in their minds. Surely they wondered why Jesus was talking to her, but they didn't ask him while she was standing there. They didn't want to give her the time of day. They couldn't ignore her, but they could still avoid her. The woman, on the other hand, wasted no time going back to town and telling anybody who would listen. Did you catch what it said in verse 28? It said she left her water jar at the well. Why? She's not thirsty anymore. She's not thirsty anymore. She came there to fill her physical jar with physical water, and Jesus had instead filled her heart with living water. She ran back into town to give people a drink. She felt safe with Christ even when her sin was exposed because Jesus exposed it in grace and truth. John chapter 1, he came in grace and truth. He's full of it, full of grace and truth. There's no shame in her voice when she beckoned people that she had earlier avoided. Come, see the man who told me everything I ever did. Jesus had just told her plainly that he was the Messiah, but in that day, a woman's testimony was considered unreliable, and so instead of declaring, hey, I found him, she posed it as a question to spark interest in the people. Could this be the Messiah? She's not doubting there. She's drawing them in sparking their curiosity, and they were curious. They all came out. They wanted to see for themselves. And while the Samaritans were on their way to drink living water, Jesus' disciples were talking to him about, about food. Notice that their entire conversation with him is sandwiched in between the woman's testimony in verse 29 and 39. Both times it says, come see. See the man who told me everything I ever did. John arranged it that way. John is one of these disciples, Right? He arranged it that way as he's telling this story so that we could see that she was doing what he and the other disciples should have been doing, but are totally neglecting. And while the Samaritans uh, are, uh, yeah, while they're, while they're on their way to drink living water, these disciples are con concerned with making sure Jesus has something to eat. Now, Jesus probably was hungry, right? He came there thirsty. It's the heat of the day. He's hungry. He's thirsty. But he wanted his disciples to understand a more urgent priority that would bring greater nourishment to him and to them. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In the, the Torah, in, the, the, in Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3, Moses told the Israelites that God had humbled them in the wilderness by letting them go hungry and then giving them manna to eat. Why? So that they would learn that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is compelled and nourished by the Father's will. The Father's will was for him to go through Samaria. He had to. He had to. And bringing living water to the Samaritan woman and the many more Samaritans who believed was greater nourishment to Jesus than any food that the disciples could have brought back for him to eat. 
But the Father's will wasn't just for Jesus to go through Samaria. It was ultimately for him to go to the cross as an outcast among outcasts. To give his life as a ransom for sinners. He was judged in our place to pay the price for everything we ever did. He took our guilt and our shame upon himself so that we could be free from those things once and for all. As Jesus hung on the cross, you know what he said? We'll see this in John 19. John's the only one that records this. He said, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. He's parched. Tongues sticking to the roof of his mouth as he's hanging there, dying for sinners. But there was no water to quench his thirst. Only sour wine. But it didn't matter. Why? Because after he'd received the sour wine, what did Jesus say? It is finished. I've done the work. The Father's will is accomplished. I'm nourished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He'd completed the work of the one who sent him. And after three days, the father rose him from the grave to show, yeah, he did. That work is done. And then to give living water and eternal life to all who believe in Christ. Listen, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? You know, continuing in sin is like, is like drinking salt water. You ever done that? You ever been out to the ocean and like a big wave comes, it smacks you in the face and you get that salty taste and you instantly become more thirsty, right? Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink, right? We know this phrase. The more you try to drink that, the more thirsty you become, but that's the only water source you know. But salt water... And sin never satisfy. It only dehydrates. It doesn't help you survive. It leads to death. Listen to Jesus' words at the end of the Bible. He says this, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. He knows everything that you've ever done. He knows everything that I've ever done. And in compassion, he comes to us. He says, I'm not turning away. I'm not avoiding you. I'm not casting you aside. Jesus has come near. He's come near. Why, would, why not stop then searching for better water? Why would you want to continue in something that only makes you thirstier? Believe in Jesus. Bring all your sin, all your guilt, all your shame to him. He already knows it. He already knows it. When you do that, when you trust in him, guess what? You'll never be thirsty again. Yeah, physically. But he's living water. And he will quench your thirst. As followers of Christ, we need to hear Jesus' call to his disciples in verse 35. Listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes. And look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. When they looked up, when the disciples looked up, do you know what they saw? A whole bunch of Samaritans coming out to the well for a drink. Spiritually thirsty Samaritans 
coming to drink the living water of eternal life in Christ. And those Samaritans were coming out for that living water because the woman who met Jesus at the well told them where to find it. She was a laborer in the harvest. Jesus didn't want his disciples to miss the joy of sharing in that labor or, or the spiritual nourishment from doing the will of the one who sent him. When we're not compelled by the mission, it's easy to miss the harvest, right? We're not looking up. We're not seeing what's out there because we're going to be distracted by things of lesser importance that we think are more important. But think for a moment about the last time that you shared the gospel with someone else. Even if that person didn't come running to Jesus as a result, wasn't your own soul nourished as you shared these glorious realities of what Jesus has done? That will never leave you thirsty. Weren't you worshiping in spirit and in truth as you declared the glory of God through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ? And if you think that your testimony doesn't matter to others, then you need to only... You need only to look here at the Samaritan woman. She was a nobody who brought everybody to Jesus. This excluded woman included all in her invitation to come and hear what Christ had to say. That's why her testimony was important. Not because she was in the center of it, but because Jesus was. But her example teaches us something else. When people listen to us, they should always, it should always lead them to listen to Jesus. Our testimonies will include the work that Christ has done in our lives, but they should ultimately point to the work that he has already finished in his life and death and resurrection. Make it about him. That's the living water. We point people to Jesus because in grace and truth, he always gets to, heart, to the heart of what they truly need. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark, and so Jesus invited him into the light. The Samaritan woman came to Jesus at the well, and so he invited her to drink the living water. The disciples came back with grocery bags full of food. And so Jesus pointed them to an abundant spiritual crop. And we come to his word together today to be reminded of what the Jewish disciples missed and the Samaritan people were convinced of that Jesus Christ really is the Savior of the world. When the world turned its back on God and worshiped lesser things, God had every right to leave us all condemned in our sin. But instead of avoiding the world, he came to it. And he walked through it. Why? He had to. He had to. Jesus came to complete the will of the Father. He was compelled by the mission that the Father gave him and driven by his love for spiritually thirsty people. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, all of us need water to survive. Yes, physically, but even more so spiritually. We live in a world full of thirsty people. But as believers, our thirst has been quenched, quenched by the living water of Jesus Christ. Think about this for a moment. Jesus had to come to you. And he had to come to me. He had to. Why? Because we were so thirsty. And he had living water. He didn't come begrudgingly, he came willingly. 
He was compelled by necessity because he was sent to seek and save the lost. And oh, weren't we lost? So we too must be compelled by necessity, compelled by our mission, not begrudgingly, but willingly because we find nourishment in obedience to his will. We must be determined to take living water to thirsty people. But we also must be willing to see them as thirsty. Where's compassion compelling you to go? Chances are it will be to inconvenient people in inconvenient places. But why not worship the Lord in spirit and in truth this week and go and offer them a drink? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the living water in Jesus Christ. We thank you that as we come to the fountain that overflows, that we will never run dry. Lord, we grow weary. We hunger. We, we thirst physically. Father, we, we grow weary in doing the work that you've sent us to do. But we can always come to the fountain. Christ is with us. He's in us through his spirit. The living water is welling up in us for eternal life. Lord, would you help us to remember that and be satisfied? And would you give us a, a compulsion by your love not to live for ourselves, but to live for you and go to thirsty people and take that living water to them so that they too might drink and be satisfied. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the living water. Amen.